it. You don't wanna miss it. I was born to get it. This sound like theme music, motivation to grind and get you through it. Church. I'm bothered, never losing, check the score. Jamel show improving. Trophy. Don't make me tell you 50-11 times from politics to laugh. Every week she shines. My word, how I live it. You don't want to miss it. I was born to get it. I recently finished a book called Homegoing by Yah Jesse, and I really hope I'm saying her name appropriately because Homegoing is one of the most extraordinary books I've ever read. It's historical fiction and one of the main characters in this book, Marjorie, says something about books that has stayed with me ever since I read it. She said she loved reading books that stayed inside of her and that's exactly how I felt about this book. It stayed inside of me and honestly I can't stop thinking about it. It followed a family's roots from Ghana to America and how the slave trade impacted this one particular family. It explains what was lost, what was broken and generational trauma all in this one incredible story told from numerous points of view within the same family. As I'm processing this book, Last week, former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice appeared on The View and among the many topics she discussed was critical race theory. Now, to break down what she said, the word of the week is feelings. Just give me a second to speak. It's the word of the week. Yeah. And here are Condoleezza Rice's feelings about critical race theory. I come out of an academic uh, institution, and uh, this is a, something that academics debate, what is the role of race and so forth. And, and let me be very clear, I grew up in segregated Birmingham, Alabama. Mm-hmm. Um, I couldn't go to a movie theater or to a restaurant with my parents. I went to segregated schools till we moved to Denver. Mm-hmm. My parents never thought I was going to grow up in a world without prejudice, but they also told me, that's somebody else's problem, not yours. You're going to overcome it, and you are going to be anything you want to be. And that's the message that I think we ought to be sending to kids. One of the worries that I have about the way that we're, we're talking about race is that it either seems so big that somehow white people now have to feel guilty for everything that happened in the past. I, I mm-hmm. don't think that's very productive. Or black people have to feel disempowered by mm-hmm. race. So the first thing I needed the former secretary of state to understand is that critical race theory isn't being taught in K through 12 at all. Nowhere. All these politicians who have been grandstanding about critical race theory can't name a single case of it being taught in K through 12. But here's the larger issue with what the former secretary said. It's her protection of white feelings and that being a reason why she seems to side with those who want to ban, quote unquote, critical race theory, which is really just a way for them to ban actual history being taught. Generally, in this country, the perspective of history is based on the concept of centering whiteness, which is why so much of our history is taught from a white supremacist viewpoint. This ain't about feelings. This is about facts. You can't teach around the fact That America became a world superpower because it enslaved people for hundreds of years. The people who owned the enslaved were white people and they were able to create generational wealth off owning other people. It enabled them to get quite a head start when it came to increasing wealth within their own family and becoming the center of the power structure in America. Power that they have not been wanting to relent. Now, it'd be one thing. 
if the power and the wealth creation generated by white people stopped the slavery. But it didn't. It carried through Reconstruction and Jim Crow. And it's here even now. The disparity is real. And throughout the course of history, up until this very date, it has been about maintaining every bit of that power. Hence why civil rights for black Americans didn't happen until the mid to late 60s. And we're still fighting for equality and for civil rights. It's not about white people feeling bad. It's about acknowledgement and understanding the system of white supremacy, which, and I know this will sound crazy, actually creates more empathy. And that's why I thought about homegoing in relationship to what former Secretary Rice said. As much as I'd read about the slave trade and as many stories as I'd been able to absorb, reading it in this way helped me develop a stronger sense and connection to my family history, made me curious about what that family history is, where it's come from. Because like a lot of people, I've done Ancestry.com. I've done 23andMe. I'm 27% Nigerian and 26% Ghanaian. And now I want to further understand those roots. Former Secretary Rice furthered a very dangerous fallacy that empowerment comes at the expense of someone else, that in order for one person to feel tall, someone else has to feel short. In order for someone to be rich, somebody else has to be poor. It's why in this country we look at equality as a zero sum game and not something that everyone is deserving of. More equality for me doesn't mean less equality for you. What will empower black children is if they feel seen and not just as it relates to trauma, but as it relates to joy, as it relates to their contribution. They can't be treated like a dirty little secret. I saw a meme a few months ago that read, if black kids are old enough to experience racism, then white kids are old enough to learn about it. We've been protecting white sensibilities since the beginning of time. And where has it gotten us? So maybe the route to go is to care less about white people's feelings and care more about telling the truth. However painful feelings, the word of the week. Just give me a second to speak. It's the word of the week. And now on to today's show. A lot of you grew up listening to my guest today. She was a very comforting presence in our homerooms, somebody who let you know what was happening in the world. And from there, she blossomed into one of the most instinctual, astute, courageous journalist in the country. What I love about her is her ability and willingness to dig into the stickiest situations, the most chaotic and often the most dangerous circumstances. She's been the host of some of the most groundbreaking news programs, and I have such an immense respect for her commitment to storytelling and context. Anyway, let me stop bragging about her and get right into it. Coming up next on Jamel Hill is Unbothered, Lisa Ling. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So, uh, Lisa, I brought up to my husband because he he always asked me, like, who do you have coming up on the podcast? Who are you interviewing? And I was like, oh, I'm interviewing Lisa Ling. And he stopped. and He was like, 
Lisa Lane from Channel One. And I was like, oh. <laughs> he was so excited about this. And I was just like, I didn't, you know, because my husband is younger than me. And so he was like, oh my God, I grew up watching her and this and that. And I was just like, okay. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. And then I, I recalled that was kind of the first way that I knew you. And I think a lot of people knew you. And for those who aren't familiar, Channel One was, and it's almost hard to imagine now. And I don't know if they even do anything remotely close to this now, but it used to play in like your homeroom. It was a, it was a news channel sort of designated to give young people, you know, the news and current events of what was happening in the world. And so a lot of us grew up watching Channel One like every day. <laughs> or every day you were in school. You can remind your husband that that was a, about 25 years ago. <laughs> and and when I think about that, it's uh, it's pretty surreal. Anderson Cooper, who we see on CNN every day, he was one of my colleagues at Channel One. And even though it was a show that was only seen in schools, it sent us all over the world to cover stories. And so I covered the civil war in Afghanistan when I was 24 years old and covered stories about the drug wars throughout South America and stories about globalization in India and, and, uh, and China. So it really was this incredible opportunity for someone like me who didn't have a lot of money, didn't have an opportunity to really travel and see the world that much to be in the world communicating the things that I was experiencing to a bigger audience. So uh, when you're that young and you get sent to Afghanistan to cover a war, a very complicated war, what was that experience like? Well, at the time when I went to Afghanistan for the first time in 1994, I couldn't even identify it on a map. Um, but I agreed to go as part of a Red Cross delegation. And so when I was descending from the steps of the Red Cross plane, I was immediately surrounded by all these young boys who looked like they were about 10 years old carrying Galashnikovs and RPGs and bazookas. And I remember thinking to myself, my God, I, I feel like I'm on, on another planet. I can't believe what I'm seeing right now. And then when I came home from that experience, I tried to talk to my friends and my colleagues about that, that scene and no one had any clue that that scene existed in the world. And now what's interesting is that we look at what's happening in Afghanistan today and the fact that our own country has been engaged in conflict in Afghanistan for 20 years now. And those moments uh, when I was there uh, over 20 years ago, you know, it's, it's one of those experiences where you don't realize that you're living history, that you're experiencing history. But now when I look back, in some ways, when I went back to Afghanistan in 1997, we drove past the home of the Saudi billionaire, Osama bin Laden. I had no idea who that was at the time, but it's surreal to kind of think back on those signposts for me when I had those experiences to look at where we are today. Sadly though, Jamil, I mean, if you were to ask most people in America today, even though we've been in conflict with Afghanistan for about 20 years, where Afghanistan is on a map today, I would venture to guess most people wouldn't even be able to tell you, even though everyone has an opinion about it now. Yeah, it was amazing how many people suddenly knew about geopolitics and the complications of a war after uh, the decision was made uh, by the president to pull out of the war, which, by the way, is a decision that Donald Trump also wanted to make as well. So um, there was a lot to that. So I, I, I suddenly found people's interest in Afghanistan to be quite uh, fascinating, to say the least. Yeah. Quite timely. Yeah, and very timely. Um, I want to 
definitely talk about sort of your your origin story. But uh, before we get to that and some of the other stories you've immersed yourself in and as well as this eighth season of This Is Life with uh, Lisa Ling, which is on CNN. It's, it's premiering this week as of we're taping this podcast, though, by the time people hear this, it will have already premiered. Um, nevertheless, a question that I ask every guest on this podcast is, when did you become unbothered? <sighs> you know, I think it's still uh, a work in progress, to be honest with you. Um you know, as growing up Asian American, who's, you know, a girl whose parents were divorced when I was seven, um, I was always acutely concerned and aware of what people thought of me and really concerned about what people thought of me. And it wasn't until I, I would say the last 10 years that I felt comfortable in the work that I was doing. And I knew that people were receiving positively the work that I was doing, that I got to a point where I was like, you know what, it's, it's, I, I can't be bothered with those things that used to, to really, really wear on me and plague me in so many ways. So it really is a recent thing, I would have to say. Was there a, a buildup of moments that kind of pushed you to that point? And, and, and why do you still, you feel like struggle to, to be that way? You know, I think because I grew up Asian American, really in, and I experienced so much conflict about my identity and Asian American history isn't taught in our schools. And so I had no frame of reference for the contributions Asian Americans have made for the, the, the incredibly, incredible discrimination that Asian Americans have dealt with. And so for me, I feel like even though I was a popular kid growing up, I, I was always trying to assimilate and I was always trying to deny a certain part of me. And, and again, that came with worrying about what people thought of me. And I think that when I started working in TV, I mean, I've been working in TV for so long now, and I was constantly being overlooked. You know, my shows have always performed relatively well, which is why they've stayed on the air as long as they have. But I do think that people who did a similar thing, similar kinds of shows or, or, or just did similar things, but had a different profile would often get so much more attention than I would, because I think Asian people and Asian women in particular are often just overlooked. You know, they're happy to have us around. We work hard, you know, we're often, you know, pretty educated, but in terms of promoting and celebrating and allowing Asian women to ascend up a ladder, uh, it's much more challenging. In your house, when you were growing up and you grew up in Northern California, um, how much was race discussed? Race was not discussed in my own family. In fact, we didn't really discuss much. My family was not particularly communicative, particularly about uh, you know anything that was emotional. Um, I, I mentioned my parents were divorced when I was seven. So my sister and I had to kind of fend for ourselves. But I, I will tell you that throughout my middle school and high school life, I was literally teased every single day. Not a day went by when someone didn't call me, oh, Risa Ring, or um, some variation thereof. And so while race itself was rarely discussed, I was always on the receiving end of racial taunts and teasing. I don't want to say I was bullied because, again, I I, I, I had a lot of friends and, you know, I, I, I was never pushed in a violent kind of way, but it was just a reminder that I was different from everyone else. How did that make you feel? 
Well, it, it was a huge source of conflict for me. You know, I, I, I never felt entirely American because I didn't look like everybody else, nor did I know anything about what it was like to be Chinese from China. So it was sort of like just very conflicted about my identity and, and didn't really feel connected to my hometown. It's interesting because I come from a suburb of Sacramento, which actually is a super diverse city with a huge Asian community. But that wasn't where I grew up. I grew up outside of that. So when I left Sacramento and moved to Los Angeles, this whole world of LA opened up to me where, you know, where it, it was just so much more diverse. There's every Asian kind of restaurant, but every other kind of restaurant, you know, like it was just this, like this amalgam of so much different ethnic culture. And it just, I, I felt finally like I was at home when I moved to LA. Given what you experienced uh, growing up as, as a child and wanting to fit in and always feeling like an, a quote unquote other, how did that inform how you parent and what you talk to your kids about when it comes to race? Look, I mean, I, I think that empathy is can be taught. Empathy can be learned. And given everything that has happened in the last year and a half, um, and, and I don't just mean, you know, the Asian hate, I mean, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, my kids know every one of their names. It's been really important. My kids are only eight and five, but they know about Japanese internment. They know about the Chinese Exclusion Act. They know what Jim Crow laws were, are. They know who Rosa Parks was. They know who Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X were. They know about Dolores Huerta. I mean, for me, it's been so important to try and give them, you know, in a gentle way, right, a sense of history and a sense of, you know, what communities have contributed to this country outside of what they learn about in school and in their history books. And I think, Jamil, if, if, if I had had a more diverse sense of history growing up, I think I would have felt like I belonged a little bit more. I think I would have had a greater appreciation and empathy for the things that so many people have, have dealt with my experience growing up, you know, and, and, and dealing with some adversity, I think has really helped me in the work that I do. But I think we can do we can all do better as parents with our kids. And again, educate them in a gentle way about standing up for people and standing up for justice and what's right. And that's the thing that does give me hope, which is that right now we're having these conversations. I mean, it's shocking to me that there's such a ferocious debate about history in government, in school districts, in legislatures, in homes. To me, if we don't know our history, we can't really know ourselves and we, we can't know how to move forward. And we can't develop that empathy that you were talking about. And like you, I, I think it's very dangerous that um, in several pockets across America, there's this push about critical race theory, which is really just masking people wanting to completely kind of a race history, a race people of color, a race marginalized people, so that they don't have to deal with what is always been uh, a prevalent issue in this country, racism, misogyny, uh, xenophobia, all these other things. And they don't understand how much more dangerous that is for people of color when they are purposely coming for our, our communities. So I'm, I'm wondering, um, you said you were trying to teach your kids in a delicate way. Is there a delicate way? And, and as a parent, was there a part of you that was really worried about shattering their innocence? So there are, you know, there are these incredible books now that are available to kids that I wish I had when I was growing up that, you know, I use the word gentle 
because my kids are very, they're very timid, you know, they get scared very easily. But at the same time, I think that they can really appreciate, you know, when I read stories about Rosa Parks and, and why it was important for her to stand up for herself, because she wasn't just standing up for herself, she was standing up for her community. You know, and and so I think there's a way to teach young kids. I mean, again, my kids are very young. They're eight and five. But I think there's a way to teach them in a way that, that doesn't scare them. Like, for example, with the, you know, the Asian hate that's been happening. You know, I have not shared with them the brutality of what's been happening to Asian people. Just that Asian people have been on the receiving end of discrimination because they're being, you know, people are, are, are blaming Asian people for the virus getting rooted here. And, you know, my daughters will say things like, well, we're Asian, we had nothing to do with the virus. And I'll say, well, that's the point. That's the point. And so I'm, you know, I don't too, talk too much about like the, the, the real sort of egregious levels of violence, but more of a sort of overview on the fact that discrimination and judging people based on the color of their skin um, or their background is just fundamentally wrong. I think for a long time, there's always been, you know, uh, the Asian community has always faced uh, a high level of racism, some of which has have led to physical attacks. But obviously, in the last two years, there's been an explosion of it. During that time where you have witnessed this explosion, how did you personally process what was happening? Well, it's been devastating. Um, there were moments, you know, because look, we're all connected on social media. And so we, we, I think by now we've all seen some of those horrific videos of um, Asian people, particularly our elderly, getting just brazenly attacked. And, you know, after the Atlanta massage parlor shootings, there were weeks when I, it was all I could think about. I was distracted from being able to work. I was distracted from being able to be a good parent. Like it affected so much of my mind space. Um, fortunately, I have, you know, become quite friendly with a number of um, Asian Americans who have been asked to do a lot of media around this. And we've kind of become each other's sounding board in so many ways. And, and the reason why that's been important for me is I've realized that I'm not alone in this. I think for so much of my life, because I grew up as one of the only Asians in my community, I felt very alone and I never wanted to bring up race. You know, I never wanted to talk about my Asianness because again, it was, it would just, again, exacerbate those feelings of, of not belonging and, and being different. But you know, when we all talk about the things that we've experienced, it, 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 it feels good to be able to have a community, to be able to fight these battles together. And on top of that, to, to also be working alongside people from outside of the Asian community, people are black, white, brown, who are supportive um, of what's been happening. Because the reality is that, you know, the scapegoating of other people has been something that has happened throughout our country's history. And right now it's Asian people, but tomorrow it could be another community. I noticed on social media as these attacks were happening, there seemed to be, and I don't want to give it too much credit, but there seemed to be a push to kind of combat or pit our communities against one another, especially once the the bill passed that specifically addressed anti-Asian hate. And there, of course, were a number of people who said, well, wait, what about us? As in black people, given what had happened to George Floyd, we know where the George Floyd Policing Act stands now, which is it doesn't. And so there was this pitting against our communities. And from your perspective, how did you feel like in that moment, our communities 
kind of responded to one another. Like, did you feel like the black community was supportive enough in terms of denigrating the hate, but not just denigrating the hate? Because we I mean, that's kind of basic, but just providing support to another marginalized community that had been attacked. This is the thing that has really been challenging, you know, the tensions that have existed between the Asian and the black communities. And and I think one of the things that is important to just think about is that the, the Asian community is so, it's so diverse and so vast, you know, and it's comprised of so many different people with distinctive uh, languages and distinctive cultures. And your experience with a particular community is unique to that community. And, and the thing that made me really sad is that I think we all are kind of lumping all of the issues that may exist into one bucket. Um, there are complex issues in the Asian community. The model minority characterization of Asian people certainly doesn't help. And, and, and it was something that was specifically created to drive a wedge between the Asian community and other communities of color. Um, and, and I hope that people can just, you know, look at this as a human issue, that people shouldn't be scapegoated and brazenly attacked when what we're dealing with is something that we've had nothing to do with, you know? And again, because our history isn't taught in schools, it's hard to have a frame of reference for the contributions that Asian Americans have, have played. And I think that even many Asians ourselves are waking up to this history. But I got to tell you, you know, after George Floyd was so brutally killed, after Breonna Taylor was so br brutally killed, Ahmaud Arbery, I mean, every Asian person in my world <laughs> was out there protesting and speaking out. And so that's why it makes me really on a personal level um, that that discord um, continues to exist because, you know, I didn't grow up in Koreatown, right? And so my frame of reference for the tensions that existed there are very different. And so that's the thing that I hope people recognize that, that a lot of the tensions are, you know, they come from different communities and, and different generations. But this new generation, I think, I like to think that we're all on the same page and we recognize that we're stronger together and that our fight is really against the same structures and we can fight them more effectively if we ally together. Yeah, I mean, the fight is against white supremacy. That's the fight. It is. It is. And again, not white people, a structure of white supremacy. A structure of white supremacy, 100%. Because that is the structure that have pitted a lot of groups against each other and making us all feel as if we have to fight over crumbs of acknowledgement and recognition of justice. And when we do come together, it is a much stronger force. And that is what white supremacy definitely doesn't want. It was interesting when, as I was doing uh, research uh, to talk to you, it sounds like at a pretty young age, you knew you wanted to do this. So how did this dream materialize that you wanted to be, you know, reporting and in the field and, and on television? Well, initially when I, when I was a kid, I, I just wanted to be on TV to have a better life because the TV was always on in my house. It was my, my favorite babysitter. You know, my parents were divorced when I was young and they were always working. So not around. And I just thought, well, if I can get a job on TV, then maybe I can have a better life one day. But the problem was there was no one on television who looked remotely like me at the time, except for Connie Chung. Um, and, and Connie Chung, you know, she was the person on the national stage and, and she allowed people like me to know what was possible. And so if you ask any Asian journalist of my generation uh, who inspired them, I, I, I would 
venture to guess that everyone would say that Connie was their inspiration for pursuing this. But it really wasn't until I started reporting in the world um, for Channel One and, and really it wasn't until my eyes bore witness to some of the things that were happening in the world that I felt compelled to not just want to be on TV anymore. I was really to try and communicate the kinds of things that I was seeing in the world and, and, and here at home. So it became less about just being on TV and more about telling stories. And, and that experience that I had in Afghanistan in 1994, when I saw those young boys, especially because I knew that my own government, the United States government played such a role in Afghanistan throughout the 1980s, but no one was talking about it back home. It was at that sort of aha moment when I realized there's a reason why I've been given this opportunity to see this. It's my job now to communicate it to a larger audience. That's the thing I love about journalism is, you know, when you're a journalist and especially doing the type of journalism that you do, once you see it, you can't unsee it, (laughs) you know, and it leaves a personal imprint on how you see the world, which I think is, you know, one of the best things that I love about being a part of this profession is that it's just opened my eyes to so much and you develop a different sense of empathy than I think most people do. Uh, I want to actually talk to you more about Connie Chung, but we have to take a very quick break and we'll be back with more with Lisa Ling. Lisa Ling talked a lot about her experiences in this country as an Asian American. And I got a story to tell about how my own consciousness was raised when it came to understanding the racism that Asian Americans in this country faced. When I was at Michigan State and working at my college newspaper, The State News, me and a few other people of color on staff formed our own little clique. The State News was very white. And so a few of us who were minorities just kind of banded together. It was me, my best friend Kelly, and two other close friends, Drew and Corey. Now, me, Drew, and Kelly were black, and Corey was Japanese. Corey was my first Asian friend, smart, talented, thoughtful, funny as hell, and he was a great reporter. And I mean great. On top of being a terrific writer, Corey was fearless. There was no question he was afraid to ask, no story he was afraid to dive into, no topic he was afraid to tackle. To have that sense of fearlessness in your early 20s is honestly remarkable. We used to tease Corey all the time about secretly plotting to overthrow the government because he would just disappear sometimes or he'd be very coy about what he was doing when he wasn't hanging out with us. But that's neither here nor there. When you're on a campus like Michigan State's, which has over 40,000 students, the majority of which are white, as a person of color, your experiences are jarring sometimes. You feel the whiteness of the place all the time. Because you're routinely exposed to a lot of white people who have never been around anyone other than other white people. But in the interest of not being the pot that caused the kettle black, I'll admit that I also didn't have much exposure to people other than black people. Though I'd learned enough from history to understand that there was an obvious connective thread between how indigenous people, Asians and others were treated and dehumanized in this country. But often it takes someone who represents that community that you aren't familiar with to crystallize these shared experiences. Now, just about every week, Corey, Drew, Kelly, and me, we would get together and go to this shitty little diner in Lansing, Michigan, 
and discuss all the macro and microaggressions that we had to deal with as people of color on this extremely white ass campus and in our extremely white newsroom. We called these get togethers sessions. When one of the white folks at our college newspaper questioned our credentials and insinuated we were only in certain positions to get internships because we were minorities, which happened a lot, usually Drew would say, are y'all down for a session tonight? Or rather he'd email it, which was the code phrase for we about to go vent about these entitled white folks up in this newsroom. The sessions were one of my favorite college rituals. On our way to the diner and on the way back, per tradition, we would listen to two songs on repeat, singing it at the top of our lungs. I think you should be familiar with these. Bitches ain't shit but hoes and tricks. I mean, we would just be singing them songs. And before you ask, Corey, our Japanese homie, never, not once, came close to ever rapping the word nigga. See why people? It's not that hard. Anyway, one night, because we usually had a session after we were done at the school newspaper, we gathered at the windmill, the shitty little diner, and Corey schooled us on what it was like for him being Asian at Michigan State. Now, the Asian student population at Michigan State's campus was actually higher than the black student population because Michigan State had a significant number of international students, and the majority of them came directly from certain Asian countries. They even had their own international center on campus. Corey, who is usually pretty calm, was pissed because he was in the computer lab working on a paper and a white student came up to him and asked him if he could help him because something was wrong with his computer. Now, Corey has never a day in his life worked in a computer lab. The only reason this idiot rolled up on him is because Corey's Asian and the weirdo probably thought, of course, the Asian guy works at the computer lab. It's also possible he didn't even care if he worked there or not. He just saw an Asian face and said, surely these people know all about computers. The shame of it was it didn't happen to Corey once. It happened to him damn near every time he was in the computer lab on campus. And Corey was sick of that shit. He told us about another time he was in a class and there was a discussion on racism. And the racism that had not even been considered or brought to the surface was the racism that Asian people face because they often aren't treated as quote-unquote real Americans. Corey was born in California, but he was often treated like a foreigner, people always asking him, where are you really from? Because one of the functions of white supremacy is deciding who gets to be considered an American and who does not. Anyway, Corey jumped into the conversation in his class and injected his own experiences at Michigan State in an effort to teach them that there was a huge piece of the racial equation that we were missing. He told them, and this is a direct quote, white people on this campus treat me like I'm walking around with a fucking gong. Corey sharing his experiences with us bonded our group together even tighter, but it taught me something important about the pervasive and deep reach of white supremacy. Many of us adopted this false narrative that Asians have it good and that they don't experience some of the same racism and discrimination as everyone else because they were always held up as the quote unquote model minority. But even using that term or even buying into that is just a way to further divide us. And as you can see, we have a whole lot more in common than sometimes we even think about. And now back to more with Lisa Ling. Uh, you mentioned before the break that Connie Chung was one of the people you looked up to on television. I saw something that you said about her in an interview. You said that the Asian community was really hard on her. How so? 
I think that when she was starting in the business, um, because she was the only one, again, on a national stage, the Asian community had all these expectations of her to report, to give opportunities, to really be like a, a very vocal representative of Asian America. And, you know, my feeling about Connie's struggle back then was that just by existing, she was representing the Asian community. I mean, there's a photograph of Connie Chung in her early 30s in a sea of white men in a newsroom. And it's such a jarring thing to look at because not only was she a woman, but she was an Asian woman in this sea of white men. And the stories that she would tell me of the the battles that she had to fight. I mean, she was literally working in a lion's den, um, trying to just climb her way out of it at all times. And so I do think that there um, was unfair. I don't even think it was criticism of her. It was just the expectations on her were were unfair to, to, to have those expectations on her. I do think that's different now. <laughs> um, you know, I look at Shang-Chi, for example, which is right now the biggest movie in the world. And I look at Simu Liu, the actor who stars and plays Shang-Chi. And even before this movie came out, he was out there being so vocal and just being unabashed about the importance of combating hate against Asians and just just expressing his pride in his Asian-ness. Um, you know, there are, there are a number of Asians with profiles who've been kind of silent on a lot of these issues. And I think that's a real shame because, you know, none of us like talking about combating hatred against people in our community. This is really hard. I mean, there are so many other things I'd rather be talking about um, than trying to prevent these attacks, but, you know, people in our community are suffering and, and they are being viciously attacked. And so for someone like Simu, a young actor, who not a lot of people knew before the movie to be so unabashed, really, I take my hat off to him, but times have changed. And, and the way I look at things is, you know, what good is a platform if you don't use it for good, if you don't use it to try and protect people who are under threat? Some of what Connie experienced about, you know, people having kind of unfair expectations, was that something you also experienced? I think a bit. When I was on The View, I got hired to do an Old Navy commercial. And the irony is, is that when I went into the executives, I said, oh, we're, you're going to have a, it was me kind of dancing around with all these guys, right? I was in these capri pants. And, and I said to them, you know, I hope that there will be a diverse representation in the men who are in this, in this ad. And there wasn't a single Asian man, it turns out, even though the two executives were Asian people, ironically. Um, and so the ad came out, you know, I, I, I don't have any say. I'm like, you know, the young one on The View. And I got a lot of criticism because I was sort of gallivanting around with, you know, a, a bunch of men. And I thought that that was really unfair because the assumption was that I had any control over that. And I think that when there are few um, in the business, it becomes easy to target, right, or, or, or have expectations of rather than you yourself getting in there and trying to um, be the change that you are wanting to see. Uh, as I mentioned at the top of this podcast, 
this is uh, the eighth season of This Is Life. Um, when this started, did you think eight seasons later, we're going to be here? <laughs> oh, my God, Jamila. It's so funny because the first season of this show, we thought, how are we going to find enough stories to fill another season? And eight seasons later. Really? Oh, yeah. And <laughs> wow. we're already we're already coming up with our ninth season. And there, look, there are no shortage of incredibly important stories and fascinating stories to tell. And I'm just, I'm grateful that people have trusted me to experience and to tell sometimes things that are hard. And we've always been this kind of like little show that could. I don't know that anyone expected this show to have been on as long as it has, but there has been an audience. And to those loyal people, I'm just eternally grateful. You made a decision that for this eighth season of This Is Life that you were going to expose your audience uh, to stories that maybe they didn't know about or that they have overlooked or they're just, you know, haven't been in in the front of their consciousness. You started the season telling the story of, of Vincent Chin, who I was familiar with because I grew up in Detroit as well. And, you know, this was um, a, a case that was very landmark for a lot of reasons. But I think probably the vast majority of this country does not know about what happened to Vincent Chin and the fact that, um, you know, the people that brutalized and killed him, there was never any justice whatsoever. With that said, though, as you were ideating about what you wanted this eighth season to be about, why did you focus in particular on telling these kind of stories and how difficult was it to frankly narrow it down to these eight? <laughs> well, because of COVID, we had to pivot in how we collected our stories. You know, our show is one that has always been very emotional and sometimes very physical. There's a lot of hugging. There's a lot of holding. There's a lot of handholding that happens. And we couldn't do that um, because of COVID. And so in June of 2020, I opened social media and I saw people posting about Juneteenth. And I was really embarrassed because while I'd heard the term Juneteenth, I never really know, knew or took the time to understand like what the significance of it was. And we all know now it's a federal holiday now that it was the official end of slavery. And I was so disappointed in myself that I didn't know more about it. And that propelled me to think, well, what are the other stories you know, that, that, that have taken place throughout American history that didn't make it into the history books? And so we wanted to dedicate our whole season to trying to find those stories. And you're right. I mean, we could have done a hundred episodes of these. Unfortunately, we only had eight, but we chose eight because they were clearly moments in American history that have impacted where we are and what we think today. And so we did the piece about Vincent Chin, who was a, a young Chinese American man who was brutally murdered and accused of being Japanese during the economic downturn in Detroit when Japanese car manufacturers were producing more fuel efficient cars. So they were being scapegoated for the loss of, of jobs in Detroit. We have an episode about the Chicago race riot of 1919. So something that happened a century ago in Chicago when you read stories about Chicago today, you will probably read stories about gun violence and gang on gang, black on black crime. Well, this race riot a century ago, you can actually draw a line from that incident, that brutal incident to today and how black people were prevented and segregated from uh, you know, being able to live wherever they want. And then you know, we examine like 
the the evolution of the housing projects that were at a certain point just abandoned and you know services were cut off and they just became these you know havens for for violence and abuse because that's what happens when when there are high levels of poverty um and then the decision is made to try and gentrify those neighborhoods where those housing projects um, we're standing. So let's tear them all down and displace all the people there and send them to communities where they don't know anyone, that, where there may be existing, you know, um, organizations operating on the ground or whatever. And, and that's how we see or where we find ourselves in Chicago today. So you can draw a direct line from that race riot that happened in 1919 to what's happening in the streets of Chicago today. And I really need all these fake what about Chicago people to watch that, because whenever there is an issue that comes up where um, especially for black people, when we're trying to talk about social justice, inevitably from the cheap seats comes. What about Chicago? Shouldn't y'all be more concerned about that as if grassroots organizers for years have not been trying to combat gun violence there, which is created often by lack of economic opportunity. So. I'm glad that you're doing this. I'm glad that you're doing this so people can understand it. Absolutely. Yeah. And my my greatest hope is that when people read about gun violence or gang on gang crime in Chicago, that they will think differently after watching this episode, that they will never be able to think about it in the same way after they see this. So, I mean, you've been in the field for years as a journalist. Um, I know that The View, you were behind the desk. You never have wanted to return to being on the desk. Why is that? <laughs> I, I just I just guest hosted um, uh, like two weeks ago. I was a surprise guest for their 25th anniversary. Oh, that's right. Yeah. 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 I had a great time and I had a great time when I was on the show 20 years ago, but I could never do a show like that where it's completely unscripted and whatever you say, once you say it is out there in the age of social media. I mean, I was on one day two weeks ago and I said something about millennials, you know, not working as hard as my generation did. And man, I was assailed on social media. It was one day. I can't imagine what those ladies have to go through. And for me, it's just not it's not for me. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, maybe not that type of show, but just returning to in studio period. Is this something that you even have any desire to do? Not right now. I mean, I'm not adverse to it, maybe sometime in the future. But when, what, the, the fact is that I like I derive the greatest joy and pleasure when I am immersed in a community that is totally different than the one I live in. My senses are heightened. I'm acutely aware of everything around me. I'm listening so much more intently and I, I feel like I'm thinking a lot harder and you would think that by 48 years old, I would, you know, I would have it out of my system and then I want to stay home more. But I actually want to be out more because I feel like right now in our culture, it's become so divided. It's become so polarized that we really need those opportunities to engage. And if I can be that vehicle that brings people together, that allows you know, you to better acquaint yourself with your fellow humans, then I take that really seriously. And I, and I want to be, you know, the strongest vehicle I can. I mean, you've done reporting all over the world, Afghanistan, the Congo, Uganda, India, a bunch of other places. I'd be here all day if I named all of them. <laughs> what has reporting in different countries about complicated, intense issues taught you about the world? Well, I mean, I, I know this is going to sound cliche, but it has taught me that we all are human beings and want the same things. 
You know, we all want to be able to provide for our families. We all want to be able to be educated. We all want to be able to live freely um, and and without the fear of, of violence. I mean, they're really fundamental basic things. But I think when you, you know, when you when you fall into the rabbit hole of judging other people from other places, you you almost prevent yourself from understanding that those, those basic truths. You know, when I was in Iran in 1994, Iran and the U.S. have had this very contentious relationship since the revolution in 1979. And I remember I was in a park um, and I saw a bunch of women who were wearing their hijabs, but the front part of their hair was dyed blonde. And I asked our escort, can I just get out and talk to these people? And, and he let me surprisingly. And when they found out I was an American, they were so excited to pepper me with questions about like whether I like Metallica or whether I watched Baywatch. Remember, this is in the 90s. But at the end of the day, no matter what you are, are, are predisposed to thinking about people in the Islamic Republic of Iran. You know, they're just a bunch of people who love to rock out to Metallica as much as we do. <laughs> <laughs> What's the most frightened you've ever been on assignment? Probably when I was in Colombia and I was on the ground waiting for the president of Colombia's helicopter to land so I could do an interview with him when gunfire erupted from the countryside in the direction of the helicopter and I was right like in between it. It was the, the the gorillas who were living out in the jungle who were firing on the president's helicopter. That was probably the scariest because I could literally see bullets flying in front of me and we were hiding behind cars. So that was probably among the scarier moments. The most uncomfortable you've been during a story. Hands down, you know, it's funny because I can go to war zones, I can cover co conflict, but because I grew up in such a like repressed Asian household, it's really hard for me to talk about sex. And so a couple seasons ago, I was reporting on the swinger phenomenon. It's actually, you know, known as the life now. So it's even it, it's even grown beyond just, you know, couple swapping. And I attended the largest swinger convention in New Orleans and an entire floor was outfitted with mattresses. And that was hands down the most uncomfortable I'd ever been. <laughs> so uh, were you recruited quite a bit while you were there? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. I was like I was like a piece of candy coming through. And, you know, it was really funny because, you know, everybody started going at it in this conference room. And I hear a couple of people like, hey, Lisa Lane, what are you doing? <laughs> It was so funny. Anyway, yeah, I, I have some some crazy stories, but like, you know, conversations about sex are always have always been challenging. But at the same time, you know, I also try really hard to normalize these things because, you know, our sexuality is such a vital component of who we are. And so that's something that I'm still trying to <laughs> get more comfortable with. Uh, but you did a whole digital series with This Is Sex with Lisa Lee. Yeah. Yeah. I did a digital series for CNN. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, was that the plan that you wanted to purposely focus on something that you knew deep down caused you a great discomfort? Like, how did this idea come about? <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of those things. I mean, on the one hand, you know, we, 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 we live in such a sexualized culture where sex is used to literally sell everything. But at the same time, we're so puritanical 
um, at the same time and, and feel the need to legislate women's bodies, you know? And so there's so much conflict around sex. And the reality is, is we're just not even open about discussing it. You know, like if you look at, you know, I, I learned this crazy statistic about STDs in this country. The U.S. spends billions, over $10 billion fighting STDs, you know, trying to create medications and, and treatments. Whereas, you know, in the, the, the world of professional pornography, the rates of STDs are actually very, very low because they're communicative. They talk about sex, they get checked regularly. And so again, that's the, there's that dichotomy, right? We're hugely sexualized, but yet we don't talk about it. And I think it would behoove all of us to figure out ways to be more communicative for our own safety and our own pleasure, frankly. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'm sure when you told your husband, like, hey, I'm going to do a whole sex series, he was probably like, go right ahead. (laughs) My husband is so funny because I come home from so many of these stories. I'm like, oh, my God, I have to talk to you about something. And he was like, oh, what? Like, you know, like, is it polygamy? Is it online porn? Is it like, like, he's just like, you know, I come home and I'm just like wanting to talk his ear off about it. And he's like, oh, not again. <laughs> I know it can be hard when you have, again, done as many stories as you've had and, and done them at such a high level. But is there a story or stories that are still sort of burning in your your gut that you haven't been able to do? And what would that story or stories or or even topic or subject matter be? Well, so so we are embarking upon our ninth season of This Is Life, and we've put together what I think is a pretty fascinating list of topics that we're wanting to, to explore. I can't share them with you. <laughs> <laughs> I had a feeling that was coming. <laughs> yeah, if I tell you, I'd have to kill you. But no, I mean, look, I think I think the reason why I'm a fairly decent journalist is because every story that I work on becomes the most important story to me at the time. And I just become laser focused with my team on how to um, best tell that story in the most responsible way. And so it's hard to say there's one thing that I want to cover over another, because every story is the most important when I'm working on it. Mm. Um, You mentioned the word responsible. And I became a professional journalist in 1997. And I'm thinking about how the profession was then versus how it is now. For you, what has been some of the biggest changes uh, that have occurred in journalism? And what do you think it's missing right now? Well, I mean, the last four years has been a real big blow to journalism. Um, The characterization of mainstream news as fake news has been incredibly destructive. Now, that's not to say that news outlets aren't biased. I mean, certainly they're biased. And, you know, I I, I think that, that certain outlets absolutely skew in certain directions. But but when the former president disavowed mainstream news as fake, what that did is it it made people turn to other sources to look for news and information. And very often they would find it on outlets like YouTube, right? And so when you put something into YouTube that may be conspiratorial in nature, what happens? Your feed populates with like information that is slickly produced with no disclaimers that what you're seeing may not in fact be real. And so I think that's really dangerous. Again, 
mainstream news isn't perfect and there certainly are biases. But when you get out of the opinion journalism, right, because there are a lot of people espousing opinions in print and broadcast, and you get to the reporting of it, look, I mean, we have to fact check our sources <laughs> for legal reasons, but there is a process. And if we make mistakes, we have to make it a public apology and fix those mistakes. And so to me, it's been really scary and unfortunate that there are so many people in this country, in this world, who have just come to disavow mainstream media and consider it fake. It's not fake. It may be skewed, but it's not fake. Yeah, not to mention, uh, it also doesn't help when the former president refers to journalists as enemies of the state. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's so dictatorial and unbelievable. And I can't believe that so many people fell victim to it. You know, it's just it's devastating. Yeah, I mean, in a way, um, I, I agree with you, everything you said about what is kind of wrong about our business right now. It's not just how people think about us and the lack of trust that they have, which was certainly driven by somebody who is in the most powerful you know, office in the world. But a lot of it, too, is how we frame things. And, you know, I've been really disappointed with our cowardice collectively as an industry and in framing certain issues the way we have. I think, you know, this whole both sides stuff is like bullshit. Every issue doesn't need two sides. Like if we're talking about racism, what's the other side? Like what is the other opinion that we need to reflect? And I think in trying to stay true to objectivity that we have actually lost the ability to tell the truth because objectivity is definitely necessary, but I think fairness is actually more important than objectivity, if that makes any sense. Well, I think one of the biggest challenges um, to the world of journalism is that it's so it, it's been so corporatized, right? And so, you know, as far as broadcast journalism is concerned, like it has to adhere to a rating system, right? And so inevitably, the loudest voices and the most sensational stories are going to be the ones that generate ratings. And, and that to me is so backwards. Like the idea that your news has to rate, there's something wrong with that. And again, that doesn't mean that it's fake. It just means that the things that mainstream news chooses to cover, right, are at the expense of so many other things that are happening in the news because they may not be the loudest or it may not be what rates, if that makes sense. Yeah, we've been talking a lot in this podcast at different points about representation and how important that is. Uh, I wonder, how do you feel? I mean, obviously, the, the world went crazy over crazy rich Asians. But what I noticed that happened after that is that there were suddenly these spinoffs, especially in the reality world, that focused on Asian bling culture. What's your take on that fixation? So annoying. <laughs> <laughs> so annoying. And, you know, I think that's one of the, the things that I don't know. I mean, it's a shame because, again, the Asian American diaspora is so vast. Um, income inequality in the Asian community is the widest of any community. And so when, you know, people have limited exposure to Asians to begin with, and they think that all are crazy rich or have bling empires, I think that's really tragic. I mean, I'm glad that things are starting to change and the media is much more receptive than it's ever been to a more diverse array of stories. But unfortunately, it took 
Asians being targeted to recognize how invisible we have been from the media and the narrative. You know, I think it's amazing that Shang-Chi is the biggest film in the world. I hope the next big Asian film doesn't involve martial arts and rich people. <laughs> um, I mean, I love both Crazy Rich Asians and Shang-Chi. I mean, oh my God, they were fantastic films. But I'm hoping that we're all ready to kind of like expand our horizons and accept the fact that, you know, we do a lot of other things, too. <laughs> yeah. And um, I think it is important that people realize that there are there's a, a vast difference between Japanese culture, Chinese culture, like they're so different. And unfortunately, what does happen here is that they all get kind of lumped in together. Uh, with that being said, uh, you're half Chinese and half Taiwanese, correct? Yes. Those are two different cultures again. So how did you find, I guess, a, a comfort in, in figuring out how to blend, you know, both sides of your identity together? Well, it took a long time, Jamel, because, you know, for so much of my life, I was in, in denial or just, you know, I, I, I had carried around so much shame about being Chinese American. I, I didn't even like the, the idea of even claiming the Taiwanese part of me was just like unfathomable. I mean, my husband is Korean American. And when he was teased, you know, he was called Ching Chong and people would say like, stop speaking Chinese. And even for him, it was hard to 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 fight to make that distinction because it was just like, uh, I just call me whatever you want. I, I just want to blend in. In fact, I just had um, a conversation with a Bangladeshi American comic whose name is spelled Aluddin, but for most of his career, he's just gone by Aladdin because that's what people called him. It was just easier to say Aladdin. There's a movie, the whole thing. And his parents used to get so frustrated with him and say, we named you Aluddin. But he would say, I am a, he was from the Bronx. Like, you know, everybody knows me as Aladdin. And it's just this year that he is claiming or reclaiming his Bangladeshi American identity and, and, and going by Aluddin. So this is something that I think is happening in the Asian American community right now. I think so many of us have just kind of like, you know, we, we, we're proud of our identity, but because we don't see ourselves reflected in ways that are not stereotypical, we've just kind of like just gone along with the status quo. And, and I think that's changing. And you're seeing a lot more people in the community that are demanding to be heard and demanding to tell a, a more diverse array of stories. Uh, so you feel like the, the, the sense of empowerment is growing, it sounds like. I think so. I think so. I mean, I, I think that there is an overall awakening that that is positive in Hollywood. And that is that like, you know, I, I someone recently said to me, like, we know all the white people's stories. Like we <laughs> like we know the stories of, you know, success and addiction and abandonment. Like we know all those stories, you know, like it's time for other stories. You know, it's time for other American stories to be able to have a kind of platform um, to be understood and to be learned and, and experienced. Well, now that I've asked you to solve, um, you know, racism and anti-Asian hate, I, I just I feel like <laughs> I owe you some fun questions now, Lisa, before we get you out of here. OK, OK, let's do it. Let's do it. So it's a segment that I do with every guest that appears on the podcast. It's called This or That. The choice is yours. You can oh. get with this or you can get with that. You can oh. get with this or you can get with that. I give you two choices and you have to pick one. OK, I know that. You know, as you said, that TV raised you to some degree. I am told by my sources that you are a decent Brady Bunch fan. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Or do, grew up watching the Brady Bunch at the very least. So, Jan or Marsha? 
<sighs> definitely Marsha. I'm an older, I'm like an older sister. So my sister will definitely say she's definitely Marsha. <laughs> Although I like Jan better. You like Jan better, but Marsha, okay, is the one. All right. Henry Golden or John Cho? Ooh. Ooh. That, <laughs> I, I have to plead the fifth on that. That one is a difficult one. You don't get to plead the fifth? That's Ooh. not how this works. I mean, I love the British accent, but like, I've always had a thing for Korean guys. So I'd have to say, mm. I'd have to go with the Korean guy because I've just like always had a thing for Korean men. Well, clearly you <laughs> married one. So I guess exactly that, that is a, a good answer. And by the way, when we were um, talking about representation, I think that is one of the cool things to see that you actually have Asian men who are sex symbols or considered sex symbols. Um, now, whereas oh my god, yeah, a lot too, and where I I don't think um, we've seen that before, and even more looking uh, seeing them cast in roles that I know that would be traditionally reserved for white men. So I think that's like a huge step forward into the representation that we were talking about. I mean, as Ali Wong likes to say, like Asian men, it's like that dolphin skin. You know, you just can't beat it. <laughs> <laughs> dolphin skin. That's a new one. Okay. Um, <laughs> I know you're a big foodie, so dumplings or noodles? Um, I would definitely have to say noodles. Noodles, okay. Yeah, I just like the the, the pure carb. <laughs> <laughs> the pure carb, okay. Yeah. All right, and finally, we were talking about some uncomfortable stories. So you mentioned the swingers next door story that you did. Uh, what was more uncomfortable, that story or the sexual surrogacy story? Oh, definitely the swingers. I, I just, you know, I've seen a lot of things in my life, a lot of things all over the world, but that many people in one room doing that thing was, uh, <laughs> that was definitely the most uncomfortable. <laughs> That's journalism. You, that is some journalism. Yes. But didn't, if I'm not mistaken, didn't for the sexual surrogacy story, didn't you get naked? Oh, so, okay. So that was the sexual healing episode. Um, oh, sexual healing. But, but, but you interviewed sexual surrogates, correct? In that? Yes. Yes. Um, I was thinking about women who carry other people's babies, but yes, I did. So that I did not set out that day to take off all my clothes in front of the cameras, but we were reporting on a woman who does therapy involving sex for people who have just really, you know, challenge issues, like often victims of assault, rape victims, people who have severe body image issues. And there was a moment where I was watching her with this young man who had uh, multiple sclerosis and, you know, his, his body was, you know, very deformed and he was looking at himself. They, they stripped down naked and they would talk about the things that they love about their own body. And it was so moving to hear this young man talk about what he loved about his body and he was just so free and i said to myself if he can be so free why do i have issues about my own body and so it was just this like impulsive compulsive uh, reaction that i had and i was just like i gotta do it if he, if he can do it why shouldn't i be able to do it and it was an incredibly liberating thing because we all are just so hung up about our bodies when they're just our bodies. Wow. So was the decision to strip down, was that spur of the moment or did you go in thinking? Oh, no, it was completely, completely spur of the moment. So in actuality, I felt more comfortable doing it because I had him next to me as well. Um, that was far less 
uncomfortable than the swinger episode. <laughs> that was just some craziness. <laughs> <laughs> Lisa, you have given me hope now um, because I would love to do a ranking of all the best strip clubs in America. That's the story burning in my heart to do. <laughs> I will not strip though. <laughs> and nor will I get on a pole. <laughs> But you have convinced me that this kind of investigative reporting is very necessary. So <laughs> yes, it's worthy. We have to we have to normalize and, and have discussions about it for sure. Definitely. Well, um, Lisa, I think you're a fantastic journalist and a storyteller. And your docu series. When I think about when I was getting into this business, the type of reporting that not only I wanted to do, but be inspired by you completely come to mind because of the incredible work that you have done for such a long time. And especially now at a time more than ever, where we need journalists to be able to tell stories in a way that does inform, that does bring people together. It just really puts the importance on, on the work that you do. So I thank you for that. And I thank you for spending this time with me and uh, talking about all these different issues. I really do appreciate you. It was a pleasure. Well, thank you. I'm a huge fan of yours and also just appreciate how you how outspoken you've been on things that matter. So thank you. Yeah. All right. Well, Lisa's getting out of here. She's got more sex to report on. Y'all know what's coming up next. <laughs> Final segment. Fuck it. I'm bothered. Understandably so, a significant amount of news coverage has been devoted to Brooklyn Nets star Kyrie Irving, who at the taping of this podcast is not playing with his team, even though the NBA season started last week, because he's unvaccinated. New York, like San Francisco, Los Angeles, is under a mandate that prohibits unvaccinated people from going to restaurants and most importantly, gathering at large events, which of course means basketball games, which are played at large arenas. As an unvaccinated person, Kyrie is unable to play in the Brooklyn Nets home games, which amount to about 41 games. Rather than deal with working around that, the Brooklyn Nets decided that Irvin just won't play until he's fully vaccinated. So as of now, he stands to lose at least half of his salary, which is about $17 million. Now, as bothersome as this story is, remember that 96% of NBA players are vaccinated. Kyrie is in the serious, serious minority. But as we've dealt with coronavirus, one thing I've noticed is that there is a tendency to make black people the face of the unvaccinated. However, there's another group of people who are unvaccinated and they deserve far more attention, criticism and scrutiny than Kyrie Irving does. And that would be the nation's police force. Many cities, particularly the major ones, have implemented a vaccine mandate for all city employees. And the group that lags behind in all of these places are the police. The LAPD vaccination rate is reportedly 51 percent. In New York, 61 percent of police officers have received at least one dose. In San Diego, that number is 50 percent. In Chicago, it's 64 percent. Some officers have chosen to just walk off the job rather than adhere to the vaccine mandate. And fucking I'm bothered because isn't it funny how for the rest of us rules are rules, law for thee but not for me? That crowd has suddenly turned so conveniently defiant. It's just really something to see police officers openly defying rules, especially at a time when homicides nationwide are surging. 
That old public servant stuff only goes so far, apparently. Now, what makes the police's low vaccination rate even more eye opening is that it's created an unexpected crisis in their ranks. Let's listen to Fox News White House correspondent Peter Ducey try to get to the bottom of this crisis with White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki. The point of a vaccine mandate is to make people safer. But a vaccine mandate also means tons of police and military may walk off the job. Then at the end of the day, does a vaccine mandate make people safer? Well, where are tons of police and military walking off the job? Well, the Washington Post says that hundreds of thousands of U.S. service members remain unvaccinated. Uh, which is leading to questions about possible military readiness. Uh, the L.A. County Sheriff says that 5 to 10 percent of their workforce could walk off the job. And so considering the, I mean, is there any concern about that? Well, I would say what we point to or what I would point you to is evidence with uh, a range of companies, organizations, Frankly, the Department of Defense can also give you the up-to-date statistics on members of the military. I believe it's over 90%, but I would point you them for statistics. Branches, but there are other problems in the world than COVID-19. International <laughs> terror, gang violence, murder, arson, drug what, dealing. What Is was, there any what, concern what was the high, what was the, What was the number one cause of death among police officers last year? Do you know? COVID-19. I'm telling you, I don't even know why Peter Ducey insists on asking Jin Psaki any questions because he gets owned every single time. But isn't that something? Now, I'm not saying this to make light of things, but let's just follow the path here. The police are among the most vaccine hesitant groups out there. And in 2020, the leading cause of death for police officers is COVID. It is double the number killed by gun violence and car crashes combined. Make it make sense. This, of course requires a bit of a breakdown into the psychology of police officers. Fraternal Order of Police President John Cantazera said this about Chicago's mandate for city employees. We're in America, goddammit. We don't want to be forced to do anything, period. This ain't Nazi fucking Germany where they say step into the fucking showers. The pills won't hurt you. Getting beyond the utter ignorance of comparing a vaccine mandate to the atrocity of what happened in Germany. Getting beyond that, I'm noticing a theme here. And Kyrie Irving alluded to this when he did an Instagram live to explain his quote unquote position. Kyrie said he wasn't against vaccines. He said he was against mandates, even though you had to be vaccinated or immunized to play sports, to go to school, to attend college, to enroll in the military, to travel. Mandates aren't new. It's part of the social contract we make with each other to have a functioning society. It's why we wear seatbelts. It's why we get insurance. There's a certain amount of safety that we have to provide for one another in order to be able to live together as a community. In other words, it ain't about you, dog. So this fraternal order of police guy isn't expressing hesitancy about the vaccine. That would be understandable. Those questions can be answered. His position is, I just don't like being told what to do. And neither apparently do the other officers. So fuck that mandate. Protect and serve. Am I right? Public servant. Am I right? You know, narcissism isn't a good quality to have if you're a police officer. But given the widespread deep issues within the American police force, it isn't surprising that there's a core of narcissism there with those who have chosen policing as a career path. The above the law energy from the police. Yeah, not like we aren't familiar with that one. Am I right? 
I have certainly said a lot of words about Kyrie, written a column about him. But as much as I disagree with him, the face of unvaccinated America is not Kyrie Irving. It's the police. It's firefighters who are the second most likely group to be unvaccinated among city employees. These are the alleged caretakers of our society. They come in contact with scores of people every day. And the fact that so many of them won't do the bare minimum to keep themselves safe and the public safe says a lot about the real reasons they're in that job in the first place. Here's a hint. It's not to serve. Stay unbothered. Jamel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify and Unbothered Inc. From Unbothered Inc., Christina Tapper is our head of content. Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent. Rich Burner is our head of network production. And Evan Dick is our executive producer. From Spotify, our executive producer is Christina Tapper. Supervising producer is Jifa Yador. And project manager is Jessica Dow. Our theme, Word of the Week, and Fuckin' on Bother tracks were written and performed by Brandon Lowe, produced by Lucas Bry and Alexander Hitchens. This or That Music, The Choice is Yours, revisited by Black Sheep, written by Andres Titus, William K. McLean, and Johnny Hammond from Universal Polygram International Publishing, Inc., on behalf of itself and Pete Boat Music. You can find me at Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill, and please remember to hit follow on Jamel Hill is Unbothered on Spotify and share with your friends. <laughs> this sound like theme music, motivation to grind and get you through it. Unbothered, never losing, check the score. Jamel show improving. Don't make me tell you 511 times from politics to laugh. Every week she shines. My word, how I live it. You don't want to miss it. I was born to get it.